I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Bill and Scott talk about the recent deal between the United States and United Kingdom, ongoing effects of Russia sanctions, and a new trade term, re-globalization. All that and more on this week's episode. Hey, Trade Guys. Hope you're doing well this week. Hi to our listeners. So the big news of the last 24 hours is that the UK and the US reached a deal on steel Tuesday night in Baltimore. As per the joint statement, uh, the two countries will, quote unquote, confer on entering into discussions on global steel and aluminum arrangements. So what's the deal? Well, steel workers are happy, which means in this case, the steel industry is probably happy. It turns out this US Chamber of Commerce is happy, I think less happy than the steel workers, but because the U.S. Chamber would like all of this stuff to go away, but they think it provides uh, some relief. It's an interesting agreement. In some respects, it's the same as the others. It's a conversion to a a tariff rate quota. So a certain amount comes in duty-free, and then above that, it reverts to the the Trump duty. So that provides some relief for uh, the British. One interesting feature about it that was intriguing is it has a special audit requirement an annual audit, because it turns out that British Steel, the company British Steel, is owned by the Chinese. And one of the things that Ambassador Tai or Secretary Romando really took care to build into this agreement was a provision that requires an annual audit of British Steel to make sure that it's not benefiting from Chinese subsidies or Chinese market-distorting practices. That's novel. That's not in any of the other agreements that they negotiated, then it's specially designed, if you will, for one company, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Well, it sounds like progress, and not all the wrong people are happy, so that's good. Look, the United Kingdom is still a very important ally of the United States. We've long been discussing with them uh, some kind of preferential arrangement, whether it's a full FTA or something else. But Removing obstacles is a key way to get to the real negotiation of a relationship that that makes sense for both the UK and the US. These tariffs were put in place in what feels like a totally different world. I'm glad to see them, you know, modified to an extent that people are happy with the progress. I think there's a lot more progress to be made because it's not clear what the end game is for the Section 232 tariffs. But there's a better relationship with the United Kingdom to be had out there if we can get to it. Apparently, the agreement also does not, like the Japan agreement, does not include inviting them to join the green steel or sustainable steel negotiations that we're embarking on with the EU. I think in the Japanese case, the American statement was that Japan wasn't really ready to do that, said something about their steel production methods. I don't think there was an explanation in the case of the UK, although I have to think that bringing the UK into a negotiation with the EU would probably be awkward under certain current circumstances and perhaps not welcomed by the EU. Bill, you mentioned certain novel provisions of the agreement. We've been hearing that these dialogues and administrative arrangements are somewhat aiming to depart from what Ambassador Tai last month described as traditional exercises and vehicles. 
Do both of you think that these new trade arrangements are the best way to go about trade policy? No, I don't think so. I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I was kind of bemused, would be the best word, by Ambassador Tsai's latest comment, which she made, I think, yesterday, which was that formal trade agreements are a 20th century tool. And in point of fact, most of U.S.'s free trade agreements are 21st century agreements. It's not really a 20th century tool. I think she's sort of saying that that's old think, and she is the proponent of new think. Sounds a little bit like 1984, doesn't it? But uh, the problem with new think is that, once again, she's proved very adept at explaining what we don't want to do and not very specific about what we do want to do, aside from doing something different. Yes, I, I hate to sound like the cynic on the program, but in this, in this case, it sounds to me like we've got new topspin for the same old lack of confidence in the competitiveness of the American economy. For the life of me, and having looked at economic performance of many economies over many years, there's no economy I'd like to be the advocate for more than the United States. We are a powerhouse. We remain a powerhouse in many, many aspects of uh, internationally competitive sectors. We ought to be bold in opening markets for our exporters, in making sure our technology has global reach. We ought to be doing the best we can for the American innovators, whether they're on the farm or in the factory or in the lab. And we seem ashamed of it. We seem somehow worried that we're going to lose. And I just don't, I don't understand that mentality. Well, let's turn to another topic that we've discussed quite frequently recently on the show, which is Russia. We've discussed the possible revocation of permanent normal trade relations with Russia and what the WTO members could do about Russia. On Monday, however, a bill was published on the Duma website threatening to withdraw Russia from the WTO. How would that benefit Russia? Well, it wouldn't. It's interesting. It's one of these sort of knee-jerk reactions. You know, they don't want us, so we'll walk out first. That's what Russia did with the Council of Europe, although in, in that case, uh, they were going to be voted out. In the WTO, there's no mechanism for voting them out. Countries have been suspending their benefits, which is sort of the same thing that they're in. It's kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction. I talked to a, w, a former WTO official about this who had kind of a very interesting take on it, which is that it's a mistake, uh, I think, for, for the Russians at several levels. It will make it easier for countries to discriminate against them, which they may not want. But the other point that he made, which had not occurred to me, was uh, at some point in the future, uh, they're going to want to come back in. And having left, it's not going to be that easy to get back in. It took them something like, what, 10 or 12 years, Scott, to get in the first time. And these are not easy negotiations. Uh, the China one is, a, is an example. Once you leave, you have to start over. And at some point, there is in all probability going to be a different Russian government and a Russian government that wants to be part of the global trading system rather than wants to isolate itself. And they're going to have to start over, which is not going to be easy for them. I mean, I sort of understand the knee-jerk reaction, but it's a mistake. Yeah, it feels to me like the uh, the hothead employee who says, you can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> so I'm just going to, well, okay then. <laughs> but at the same time, it makes me curious about how uh, Russia, which is, you know, look, I don't think Vladimir Putin is a madman. I think there is an idea or a strategy involved in this. This is, there are people who play chess, you know, so there's got to be a strategy there somewhere. It may just not be the strategy we think it is. And I'm I'm personally not convinced that getting back in the West's good graces is any part of this particular president's game plan. And Russia has 
strategic advantages in fuel and food, and they may be just as happy to not be part of the West for at least a time. But I'm having a difficult time with these kinds of statements. It makes me question whether I'm sure I know how this ends. I'm prepared to just observe, but uh, someone wiser can fill me in. Well, there's kind of a philosophical question here. Can they be autarkic? Can they really withdraw from the trading system? I mean, they're not exactly a major player in the global economy, except for energy, where they are a major exporter and it makes them a, a significant factor. Can you sort of withdraw from the global economy except for the one thing you do that brings in a lot of hard currency? I don't Well, look, here's a, here's I don't a know. experiment. They, they have commercial relationships with a number of large countries, and so including India and China. India is continuing to buy Russian oil, as is China. India is continuing to sell to Russia, as is China. For me, I'm curious as to whether what we think of as the international community is actually a lot smaller than we perhaps think it is. And Russia's approach is not for global trade, but for preferential agreements with our oil importers. And that may be a large enough cohort of nations that they'll be okay. Keep in mind, it's a large domestic economy on some fundamental matters like food and and fuel and basic essentials are all produced in in Russia. Russian goods got a lot better thanks to Western technology or during the last uh, 25 years. But it, imports can pro- are probably something that they can think through. They don't they're not reliant on them. But what are the systemic implications of that? And particularly if they leave the WTO, are we heading towards dueling institutional structures? So we have a league of non-authoritarian states that support a rules-based trading system and a league of authoritarian states that don't? Well, you definitely get fragmentation, but you get fragmentations on a lot of levels. We may have one that has an alternative to the petrodollar. So you have a monetary separation. That was actually one of the results of the current financial sanctions that may have helped Russia accomplish what it wanted to do anyway, which is to separate itself from from the Western uh, financial systems and its its potential risks. There's a calculation here that is not evident in terms of pointing where, where the end game is. We could have a fragmented system on a lot of levels. But I don't see China or India withdrawing from the WTO. I agree with that. But it, it is entirely possible that they could hedge. You can trade with another nation whether or not they're a WTO member. Sure. And China trades with North Korea. There's a, yes. a good example. But, I mean, that suggests that if, if Putin's goal is to kind of split the, the West, if you will, for lack of a better term, into the people that are on his side and the people that are on the other side, you know, that, that may not work exactly the way that he wants it to work. But I'm still worried about sort of multiple systems. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely will, will be a challenge for whatever prevails at the end. So whatever circumstances prevail. And I think, you know, from just thinking about it, the consequences for Russia, I don't think there's any way to look at this except to see it as a disaster for him at, at multiple level, levels. It's turning the country into a pariah state. In, in a month, he's gotten Germany to reverse its 70-year defense policy. He's got Sweden and Finland thinking about joining NATO, you know, evaded default last week, but has uh, more payments looming uh, going forward. I can't imagine people in, in, you know, Western investors being very attracted to it, right, to Russia right now. I mean, the political risk is sky high. 
And I just, given the way he's behaving, I don't see that going down anytime soon. Do you? Uh, no, well, no, I don't. But I, I don't really see how policy we're pursuing is is providing an off-ramp. I mean, look, it, it, it looks to me like our preference is to continue to arm the Ukraine in a way that continues the conflict rather than de-escalates it and moves towards some cessation of hostilities and potential resolution. There's a lot of history in this area, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of issues that appear to me to be increasing. The, the 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 conflict is being fueled by the actions of the United States and and other of the of the G7, and we've got, we probably got to think about what that's doing. Uh, I don't I don't see an off ramp because we're not providing one for Ukraine or anyone else. No, I did a session yesterday and shared the podium with a political scientist who looks at this issue from a broader historical and political perspective. And he was gloomy. He doesn't see a, either side right now being interested in, in uh, an off-ramp or a settlement. And meanwhile, it's, it's having spillover effects, not just the obvious ones, but it's having supply chain spillover effects too. I had a conversation with some think tank people in, in Europe yesterday and asked about what they see as the impact. And one of the comments made, which is, Scott, you'll recognize this immediately, is that there is an automobile company, not named, that had to shut down because the cables in the cars come from Ukraine uh, and they can't get them. So Hmm. repeat of a fairly familiar story, but now we're dealing with food supplies and supplies of fertilizer and things that will affect many people in many places. So. I think it was what Sun Tzu always said, leave your enemy a golden bridge over which to retreat. Uh, nobody seems to be doing that. So no. well, let's pick up on the, the default that Bill just mentioned. You touched on this briefly last week. I think there was a large belief that Russia would imminently default on its debt. However, Russia was able to make the bond payments. They were able to do so in dollars and they closed the transaction with the approval of the Treasury Department. Could you fill in some of the details of how that happened? We left our listeners with a question of whether that payment would be made. It was. It was permitted by the Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control. And probably better the bondholder get paid than not. But it does lead me to question the degree to which we expect success from sanctions to harm Russia's position in terms of being able to not having a currency crisis or not having a financial crisis as they've had in the past when, uh, particularly at the point where the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union began to collapse, they dealt with a major financial crisis. It appears that they prepared themselves for this based on that experience and the experience in the Crimean incident in uh, 2014. And they're riding out well. The ruble was 84 to the dollar on the day of the invasion. It closed today at 97. And so missing the opportunity to buy rubles in end of February, the fairly uh, good evidence, at least in the very short term, that they're not close to a financial crisis. It was also announced today that Russia would make, quote unquote, unfriendly countries pay for gas and rubles as a way to prop up their currency. What do you make of that? Well, that, that was one of the reasons the ruble rallied today in, uh, in currency markets. But it appears to me that despite that is what they have said they want to make happen, Contracts indicate different. And so whether or not that would breach contracts is is a question. But Europe is still buying a lot of natural gas from Russia. They have to conclude the transactions in rubles that will help rather than harm Russia's currency. But once again, there's contracts at play. And most 
energy trade settled in dollars, some in, in euros, but almost none in rubles. So we'll see what the contracts actually say, and, and there'll be something to manage through both practically and politically. It does raise this question that has come up before when the U.S. has imposed sanctions, which is whether we are creating incentives to, uh, to develop workarounds, and in this case, to develop, uh, create incentives to develop alternatives to the dollar and, and the euro as, as reserve currencies. I mean, it's axiomatic in the sanctions business that sanctions are most effective before you pull the trigger, because once you pull the trigger and actually impose them, then you've, that's sort of it. You know, you've done your thing. And it's a case where the threat is probably more effective than the actual doing of it. But in this case, the trigger has been pulled. And here we are. And we know that both the Russians and the Chinese have in the past tried to set up alternates to SWIFT, alternate bank settlement systems. And uh, we know the Chinese would, I think, welcome the RMB becoming a global currency. There was a, uh, a session yesterday at, at, in Washington with a group of economists where one of the panelists uh, predicted that that's what would happen, that the Chinese would do that, and saying the only obstacle really was um, that they would have to make the RMB convertible in order to do it, which I think economists would say is exactly correct. And then that devolved then into an argument about whether they would do that or not. And I think the, some of the economists would say, yeah, because it would make sense. But a lot of other people, including me, would argue that uh, for the Chinese, it's a political decision. It's not an economic decision. It's a decision about control because making the currency convertible would mean they would in part lose control over it. And they're simply not going to do that. But it clearly has put the question back on the table. You know, if you can't use Western settlement procedures, then, you know, maybe we should just create our own and, and see what happens. None of that, of course, and maybe Scott, you can comment on this. None of that really deals with the, the other part of the sanctions, which is we've frozen a lot of their assets. So they can't get at them regardless of what settlement process they want to use. Yes. And those are also in place. And as you mentioned, were probably a bigger threat in their concept than in their, once they're executed. But though there are assets that are frozen. And in some cases, particularly the foreign currency reserves, that foreign currency reserves really aren't reserves if you can't use them. <laughs> and so this, is, this will likely accelerate any move toward a separate system. I don't think that we have fully calculated the effect of the sanctions being put in place and not working to change the behavior of the sovereign they've been applied to. So it's a tough situation. We're also adding sanctions to Russian officials and just for uh, good measure, some Chinese officials too, because we haven't alienated enough people yet. <laughs> Maybe someday it'll work. <laughs> One of the interesting questions that has come up every time I've made a presentation about this is, what is the legal authority for seizing or freezing assets, foreign assets? And part of that is easy to answer. It's the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEPA, which provides authority to freeze assets. The question that I still have to research, Emily, this is a hint, we need to research this question, is does the president have the authority to basically unilaterally forfeit those assets and redistribute them to other parties? Freezing them is one thing, and just holding them in perpetuity until the political situation changes and you can give them back. But President Biden did this with respect to Afghanistan government assets that have been frozen, I think, for like 20 years. And he decided to send half of them back to Afghanistan, not to the government, but to humanitarian organizations that would provide humanitarian relief in Afghanistan. 
but he decided to give the other half to 9-11 survivors, which has raised the question, can he do that? And I don't know the answer. I mean, he did it and nobody complained except the Afghans and doesn't care about that. But I don't know what his legal authority for that is. That sounds like a great topic for some future trade guys. But, it, you know, it's one of these things we, we occasionally uncover mysteries without clues and, and questions that don't have answers. Well, and if there's a loyal listener out there who knows the answer, email it to us. Yeah, and let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll reveal it uh, the next episode. Okay, let's move on to one more WTO topic for this week uh, relating to ongoing supply chain disruptions. The WTO Director General this week said that more countries should be brought into, quote unquote, international production networks. And she made headlines by using this new fancy term called re-globalization. Do you have high confidence that re-globalization is something likely to occur in the short and long term, particularly following the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, it sounded to me like a statement that should be attributed to a director at a think tank like Bill Reinsch instead of the director general of the WTO. <laughs> the director general of the WTO would be talking about what negotiations she's getting launched and what members agree to talk about. I didn't know what to make of it beyond it's a policy prescription for which the organization she leads is taking no action. It's nice that she's invented a new word, I guess, re-globalization. I'm not in the group of people that thinks that the world is, is actually deglobalizing. I'm sort of, once again, going to misquote Lenin with two steps forward, one step backwards about the new economic policy or his new economic policy. And we're sort of in the one step backward phase. But, you know, the tools that have enabled globalization, the technology advances that enabled enormous cost reductions in transportation and communication, they haven't changed. They haven't gone away. We're not going to uninvent containers. We're not going to uninvent digital trade. That's all there. And I think you've got a lot of countries that are very interested in, in using them. What I think worries me sort of systemically, and Russia is in part responsible to this, is, is you know what Putin has done is really push us back toward a might makes right every country for itself mentality. We took a big step in that direction with COVID. You know, if you look at the way the vaccine distribution was handled, you know, the rich countries took care of themselves first and then gave the leftovers to everybody else. That's why we have a vaccine debate at the WTO. But Putin is sort of saying, you know, I'm big and I've got nuclear weapons so I can do what I want. You know, we spent 75 years trying to prevent this kind of thing from happening. And here we are right back uh, where we started from. And I think from Dr. Ngozi's perspective, I don't think there's a shortage of developing countries that would like to re-globalize, to use her words. I think there may be a shortage of, of, of developed countries that want to incorporate those countries into their supply chains. And uh, that's where we ought to be focusing our attention. Yeah. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you do have answers to some of our elusive questions, please feel free to reach out. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.